Those of you who've been with us for a while, we are going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we're actually coming up towards the end here. Uh, and we are at the very tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, before we dig in, I want to tell you a little story about Henry Nouwen. Uh, many of you have, known, have heard of the story of Henry Nouwen before. He died back in the late 90s, but Henry was a fascinating man. And while I disagree with much of his theology, uh, he had particular areas of his life that were incredibly compelling to me as a follower of Christ. Henry Nouwen was uh, a great intellect. He was one of the great Catholic intellects of his day. He used to teach and preach at places like Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame. He was in the world of like Catholic intelligentsia. He was near the top of the list as a young man. And then one day he received a calling to go work with folks who had all types of disabilities. Uh, it was a very hidden job. He was a very... Uh, upfront figure. He was someone who was well-known, getting well-known, all the things that in his world someone could dream of. And then he got this offer to leave all of that and go serve people who had intense disabilities for the rest of his life. He wrote many, many books on this experience and what it was like for him to leave the, the road of success and ambition to go serve the least of these. And in part of his journals, he wrote this, this prayer book. And in one of the prayer books, he writes, he writes this very interesting line. He says, Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? It's an eerie prayer, isn't it? It's an eerie thought to think about that one day you and I are going to stand before a holy God who will see right through us who will know every motivation, he'll know every thought and inclination of the heart, he'll know everything we've done, everything we've ever thought about doing, he'll know our entire life inside and out, and we will stand before him and be completely transparent before him. That thought ought to cause some trepidation in the human heart if we're honest with what our heart looks like on the inside. To be able to hold open hands before the Lord and to hold nothing back, to hold on to nothing in terms of how we present ourselves, but just to completely release everything and put our hands and our lives in the hands of a sovereign God who knows all and trust that his grace will forgive us. And to realize that we never actually had any control in the first place. You see, a man like Henry Now, and what's so fascinating about him is he, he had all the things that everyone in all our own spheres and all our own places that we're pursuing what life looks like and the, the road God has us on, he had all the signs of what success looked like. But to give it up, it meant he had to kind of release this power and say, those things no longer have a hold on me. That's something most of us are pretty afraid to do, I think, if we're honest with ourselves. Today's passage, the Apostle Paul is on trial. And, and the structure of the passage, Acts chapter 24, the structure of the passage is really like a courtroom drama. There's a prosecution, there's a defense, and then there's a verdict. And it, it has all the makings of what would make a great episode of television in the courtroom. And, and we're going to see Paul kind of defending himself against these false accusations and then standing behind another man of power, the governor Felix, who has basically Paul's life in his hands. His verdict will determine whether Paul lives or dies, whether he stays in jail for a day or for years. Paul is completely in their hands. It's this interesting intersection of religion and politics. Two topics that most people are afraid to talk about right here in Acts chapter 24. Two places of power that most people cling on to, religion and politics. He's being accused by religious leaders, and his judgment is in the hand of this governor named Felix. 
And right in the middle of it, we find Paul, this deeply contented man, satisfied in the gospel no matter his circumstance, defending himself against lies. Underneath the story, underneath the actual flow of the passage is this this story of people in power. You've got, on the one hand, these religious leaders who have all the power, who are making up lies, as we'll see, to hold on to their power, to cling to their power. They don't want to let go of their power. And then on the other hand, you've got this guy, Felix, who's this governor who's clinging on to power, who doesn't want to let go of power. There's this theme that runs underneath it of broken people who are unaware of their brokenness, who are hurting people because of their refusal to let go of their vice grip on power. And I think Paul lays the record straight for us of what it might look like for us to actually release the power we have and actually learn what it means to serve instead. So let's begin this courtroom drama, Acts chapter 24. If you'll remember last week what we found, Paul was arrested and he's now been brought to Caesarea where he's going to stand trial before Governor Felix. We're going to pick up in verses 1 through 4. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. They laid for the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, let's just back up a little bit. That's the introduction. Now, if you were giving a public uh, statement in that day, that's basically how you would begin any public proclamation, especially if you were before someone of authority. You'd kind of butter them up a little bit. You kind of have a couple nice words to say. Here's the great irony. Now, we're going to dig a lot deeper into this guy, Felix, a little later on in this chapter and really work through who this man was and the brokenness he was carrying with him. But here's what you need to know. A few years prior to this, he assassinated the high priest, Jonathan, on the temple grounds. This is not a good guy. The high priest, Jonathan, would have been friends with the priests that were coming the high priest Ananias and the other elders and the spokesman Tertullus. He would have been, the guy who was assassinated by Felix would have been friends with these guys who are now going to accuse Paul before him. And here they are talking all kinds of wonderful things about Felix. What would bring someone to do that? To look their enemy in the eye and then just flat out lie. It's an interesting dynamic we see. Felix was a barbaric tyrant. And then he goes on. Listen listen to what they say, verse 5 through 7. For we have found this man a plague. Here's what they're talking about, Paul. We found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. All right, they accuse him of four things. Now, here's what we need to know. We've already been through Paul being accused in a number of occasions in the book of Acts. And almost every time what we found is Paul is largely innocent of these things. He keeps getting accused of causing disruption in the temple. He keeps getting accused of starting some new thing. But the truth is, that's not what Paul was doing. He never caused a riot. He was never the one who started it. These were always lies. As it turns out, the the high priest in Tertullus They're actually breaking one of the Ten Commandments by bearing false witness against somebody. 
They're walk, as a high priest, as priests themselves who are supposed to be religious leaders of their day, they're literally choosing in this moment to break overtly one of the Ten Commandments before God. For what? For what purpose? We're going to discover that in a moment. What are the things they accuse Paul of? First, they say he's a plague. That's kind of our, our way of saying he's a cancer on society. He's, he's, he's scum. There, there's nothing good about this man. It's just basically an insult to the character of the man Paul. Then he says that he's a political agitator. He's stirring up riots. To stir up a riot is to be a political agitator. Now, to Felix, that would have gone a long way. If you were bringing a prosecution against somebody and you were standing before Felix, who had governance over the entire area of Caesarea, which included where Jerusalem was, you would, if you accused someone of being a political agitator, that would be a cause for concern for Felix. That would be a reason to keep this man away from society because his job was to keep the peace over the entire land. Thirdly, they say he was a leader of a sectarian religious movement, a sect called the Nazarenes. Once again, that would have been speaking Felix's language. The Jews and the Romans had this interesting dynamic relationship. They were, for the most part, allowed to keep their own rules, their own laws, their own judgments. And the Romans just allowed them to kind of have their own rules and their own judgments, and they kind of watched it from a distance. And it was only when things really began to get divisive that they'd bring someone to someone like Felix for judgment outside of their own rules. So when they say Paul is breaking our laws, he's causing division and, 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 and stirring up strife in the religion of the Jews in this area, what they're saying is he's breaking the relationship between Jews and Romans. He's come in here, he's starting riots, and he's breaking up this peaceful relationship that we've established between the Jews and the Romans. Now, here's an interesting dynamic once again. There, there was a bit of uh, discontent, to put it mildly, of how the Jews viewed their relationship with the Romans at the time. They were grateful on the one hand that they were allowed to function fairly autonomously, but at the same time, they really didn't like that the Romans had ultimate authority over them. They, they didn't believe that Romans should have authority over the Jewish people. It should be them who had ultimate authority. And so once again, they're kind of stretching and bending the truth here. They're saying, look, we love this relationship with the Romans. And this troublemaker, Paul, he's coming in here trying to break stuff up. Fourthly, they say that he was being disruptive in the temple. Once again, we know this is a flat-out lie. They're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. These powerful men are lying in an effort to remove the troublemaker, Paul. And you've got to make, you've got to ask the question, what would cause him to behave that way? I mean, when you look at Paul and what he was doing, if you actually know the story, you followed it through Acts, he hasn't actually done anything to break religious laws among the Jews. There's nothing he's done that would actually cause them to truly have to have a judgment where they kill him or where they excommunicate him. He's done nothing of the sort. Acts chapter 24 begins Paul's defense. Listen to how he begins to defend himself. He says, when the governor had nodded to him to speak to Paul. So Felix has heard the prosecution. He now nods to Paul. Paul replies, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. First of all, notice the difference of the way that both of them start. Both of them start in the appropriate way of beginning a speech in that day. They both have words to the governor. But Paul doesn't butter Felix up. He, he just says, look, Felix, I know that you've been governor for a long time. 
You've seen things. You know how this relationship with the Jews works. That's what he's communicating. You know the general way of operations of this entire land, and you'll have good eyesight to make a judgment on what's been going on. He goes in verse 11 and 12. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. What's Paul doing here? He's laying out the facts. He's not lying. He's not stretching the truth. He's not, he's not trying to even defend his own integrity as a person. Notice, remember, the first thing that the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders, the accusation they made against Paul, was against his character. Notice, Paul is unconcerned with what other people think about his character. He doesn't even bring it up. That, that's not what he's trying to defend. Rather, he just goes to the facts. He says, look, if we're going to set the record straight, let's set the record straight. I came to Jerusalem 12 days ago. Now, it was a five-day journey to where they got. That means I was only in Jerusalem seven days. First of all, that's not enough time to stir up a real riot in seven days. He's laying the facts out pretty straightforwardly. The thing about this is, is when you live an honest life, when you've got nothing to hide, the facts will always be in your favor. You don't have to defend your integrity. You don't have to defend your character. You just lay the facts out. This is what I did. This is where I was. The problem is when you have something to hide. When you've lived below the quality and the character of life that you're called to as a follower of Christ, when you're put on prosecution, then you start feeling like you got to defend your character. You know, you try to make excuses for who you are. But here, there's no defense. There's just, let's lay out the facts. Here's where I am. Verse 14 through 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, remember, that's what they call Christians back then, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now here, Paul clarifies for Felix a number of questions. Felix likely had heard of Paul at this point. I mean, remember, we've been studying Acts. Paul's been going around planting New Testament churches, talking about a man, Jesus, who was resurrected from the grave all over the Mediterranean, and he had had great success. All throughout the known world at the time, throughout the entire Roman Empire, for the most part, Paul had planted these healthy churches that were growing. Word had probably gotten back to Felix as a good governor, as a good politician of his day. He had people bringing him news from all over the empire, from all over his region. Here's what's happening. Here's what's going on over here. Here's what's going on over here. He probably had some knowledge of Paul at the time. Paul then lays out exactly what is happening. He's saying, look, Christianity is nothing new. These men, these Jews, are accusing me of breaking all the traditions. He says, but I believe in all the law and the prophets. Everything they believe, I believe. This Old Testament, this book that they say they build their entire life on, so do I, says Paul. I believe everything that's written in those words. Now, here's what Paul is saying on the other side of that. It's these men who actually don't believe every word that's written in this Old Testament book. Because if they believed everything, they would know that a Messiah was going to come who'd be crucified on a cross, rise on the third day to forgive them of their sin. It's me that I believe in all the pages that they claim they are going to believe in. Now, this is an interesting moment for us. Many of us in this room would not be able to say with clarity what Paul says here. He says in verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. 
And I ask you today, can you say that with confidence? Many of us have kind of a cherry-picked theology where we, we, we pick and choose the stories that we're going to build our life on, right? We're a little bit like the leaders of the Pharisees that are accusing Paul right here. We pick and choose the ones that we want. For them, it was the ones about the risen Messiah, the ones that Paul and that Jesus were speaking about, passages like Isaiah 53, like Psalm 22, these passages that were clearly pointing towards Jesus, the lamb that would be slain, born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, descendant of David, that they were ignoring. Why? Because it didn't fit with their mold. Paul, on the other hand, believed every word. Many of us have a cherry-picked theology, and what we do is we pick the words that we like. A couple of the words of Jesus here, those ones seem good. The story of Jonah, swallowed by a whale, we won't talk about that one all that much. Oh, I like the red letter verses, at least some of them, at least the ones where Jesus doesn't talk about hell and judgment. I like the ones where he talks about forgiving your neighbor. That's good. I'll hold on to that one and build my life on that. Genesis, I don't know. That one seems, I'm not really going to build my life on that one. That's going to get you in trouble because what you're going to end up finding out is that the, the whole book goes together. God has a fully revealed word through all the law, all the prophets, all the scriptures, and it only works when you put all of it together. Once you start cherry-picking, you find yourself in the same position these religious leaders are. They've made an accusation that has no base to it. It quickly crumbles as soon as the facts are laid out. Look at verse 17. I love what he says. He keeps giving his defense here. He says, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. They, should they have anything against me? I love this. Felix, look, I was just bringing charity money to Jerusalem. <laughs> now, if there's a good defense to get off of a crime that someone's accusing you of, if you say, I was just bringing charity money to Jerusalem, that's a pretty good defense. What are you going to say to a guy? <laughs> I was praying in the temple and they arrested me. Here's the, here's the silly thing about it. It's the truth. He came to Jerusalem bringing charity for the poor, honoring the Lord Jesus, purifying himself and going into the temple and making prayers. And it's there where they found him and arrested him. Here's another insight for you. You can live the most honest, faithful, humble, charitable, faith-filled, servant-hearted life and you can be persecuted. Don't think that just because you live a life like Paul that you'll be off the hook from the, the trouble that is facing Christians in the coming days. The more you live like Christ, the more you serve like Christ, the more you look like Christ, the more trouble will find you. I found that to be a truth in my life. And I want to raise the temperature for us a little bit. In fact, I, I, I would almost argue that if trouble's not finding you, are you living the life like Christ lived? That doesn't mean we ought to go out finding trouble. Paul did not look for this. Paul just lived like a Christian. Average Christianity. He cared for the poor. He brought charity to the poor. He made his prayers public. And as a result, trouble found him. And I want to raise the temperature for us as Christians because I believe we're living in a day, and you have heard me say this day in, day out, from this pulpit, over and over. I believe we're living in a day where the secular worldview is going to crumble on itself. It cannot sustain itself. It's capsizing on itself. And the worldview of the Bible, those who build their life on the law and the prophets, will stand. It's solid ground. It's a good defense for the world of what is going on. And if you will build your life on this, you will find not only are you sustained by the Holy Spirit, but those those whose worldview are crumbling will fight against you. They'll push against you. Trouble will find you. And if trouble's not finding you, I've got to ask the question, are you doing this thing the way Jesus demonstrated it ought to be done? 
verse 19, they ought to be here to make a defense. He says, look, I'm not throwing counter punches. Notice what Paul doesn't do here. He doesn't start swinging back at them. He doesn't accuse their character. He, he doesn't undermine them. All he simply does is lays out the facts. He's not going to play their game on their terms. He's going to be a Christian. He's been arrested. He's put on trial. He's still a Christian. The values are the same. Sermon on the Mount is still the same. He doesn't need to defend himself. His, his identity is fully in Christ. Let's just get the facts out there. Here's my question. Why would religious leaders, like the ones accusing Paul, behave the way they did in this, in this scene? Well, I think I could maybe put the story together. See, if what Paul has been preaching is true, then what that means is they have a job redefinition coming on the horizon. Don't they? If what Paul is saying, that the curtain has been torn in two, right? We've studied this. You should know what I'm talking about. If what Paul is saying that the curtain that separates the holy of holies from where the average Christian can go, the average person can go, and the way to God has been made available with no priestly order needed between us and between a holy God because we ourselves have direct access to God through the intercessor, which is Jesus himself. And once you put your faith in Jesus, no priest is needed. I'm not your priest. I'm one of the body who's been set apart to teach the Bible, but I'm not a priest that I have sacerdotal functions to stand between you and God. Absolutely not. See, if that message of what Paul is saying is true, there's a job redefinition coming up for these priests. And they're clinging to power. I don't want to lose what I have. And the great irony of it is, it's far better on the other side. Their gifts, their strength, their knowledge of the word, that could be put to a hundred times more use under the new covenant. A hundred times more, no more use. The book of 2 Corinthians opens up and it talks about how the glory of the Old Testament, it's shown uh, at so, to such a great degree that Moses had to cover his face. And then he says, can you imagine how great the glory of the new covenant is? If Moses had to cover his face so that he, people wouldn't be blinded by looking at him underneath the old covenant, imagine how good the new covenant is. They, they don't want to step in because they're afraid to lose just a little bit of power. There's a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, and he wrote this great quote. He says, man is insecure. And he, see, he seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power. He pretends he's not limited. The ego, which falsely makes itself the center of existence and its pride and will to power, inevitably subordinates other life to its will and thus does injustice to other life. What's he getting at? He's saying, look, in this life, you and I actually don't have nearly the amount of control that we pretend we have on any given day. You didn't control where you were born. You didn't control who your family was. You didn't control any number of variables that shaped who you are today. One of the things I, I, I love figuring out with folks is, is going through their story and helping them realize that, that they're not a good person who just, you know, they did all this stuff and they did all the right things to get here. Whether or not they, they followed a lot of the rules along the way, it wasn't their choice of all the variables that put the environment in their path so that they could make good decisions like those. They're no better nor worse. They, they just had different environments in, in, their, in their life. And, and what we oftentimes do, what Niebuhr's getting at here is we, we, we try to control life as much as we possibly can. And when things aren't going our way, we exert what he calls a will to power. It's a clinging on to something to maintain some kind of control in a world that's full, full of being out of control. And he says, when you begin clinging to control, you end up hurting and abusing other people. 
Tim Keller goes on to comment on this. He says, if you knew that the power you have has been given to you as a gift of God by grace, you would be both more relaxed and secure and more humble and just. But if you think you earn your position through your, through your own merit and works, you will continue to be both scared and cruel. There's something in this for us that I think we might miss it if we only see the story as these, these high-powered men in authority. These are high priests, and we can almost think, what, what relation do they have to us? What they're doing here is what most of us do on a daily basis, if I'm very honest with you, what I see all the time in my own heart. It's a will to power. We, we try to control circumstances. We try to cling to something. And when we see that the places where we thought we had authority or influence or the places where we thought we had ability or skill and we see that someone else is doing it better or, or something might creep in on the place where we had established authority or a foot in something or just something down the road is an unknown and we don't know what it's going to look like. We're looking down the path and we're saying, man, that looks unknown and I'd rather live in the world of known. That's much more secure. So we don't enter into that. Rather, we cling to power because we can control something in the immediate future or at least we pretend we can and what we end up doing is we end up being cruel to other people other people become an obstacle to get past in order to hold on to more security that's exactly what these religious pharisees are doing the implications of the gospel are that the gospel frees us from this the implications of the gospel is that we're not in control of anything. The implications of the gospel is that the one who is in control of all things has you in the palm of his hand and will secure your future. Your faith is not even in your own hands. The grace you need to call yourself a Christian when you put your head down on your pillow tonight is not in your power to hold on to. You don't have that power. That's the perseverance of the saints. That's in his power. He's the one that sustains you to the end. And the Christian is this radical new life where you release power to God. And you say, I could never control this in the first place. And even if I could, I was sinful enough that I would have done it the wrong way. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, I'm standing here today. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, I'll be standing here tomorrow. He'll sustain me all the way. And now I got nothing to lose. Because what's that dark unknown in the future? It's only known to me. It's not known to him. What am I afraid of? I know God's going to call me to uncomfortable things. I know he's going to call me to danger. That was written plenty of times for me. And I understand that there's a rightful fear to have with that. There's a human response to that. And yet a grace-filled life is one where you sit underneath the grace of Jesus Christ and you understand the sovereignty of God and you trust him and you don't cling on to the things that the rest of the world's clinging on to. Here's the thing. When you look out at the world, we can all see this in other people clinging to power. We can spot it in everyone but ourselves. It's the honest Christian who can begin to spot it in themselves. Look at this verdict with me. Paul, the, the, the prosecutions made their, 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 their claim. Paul has now made his defense. And now we get to Governor Felix, verses 22 and 23. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, you know, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Like a good politician, not willing to make a decision. I say that in jest, but why don't politicians make decisions? You know why? Because they're afraid that you're going to judge them based on the decision they make. And they like their position of power. So rather than make a decision that needs to be made, they delay. Maybe it'll get easier to make it later on and I can get around this situation. What is it? It's a will to power. It's a clinging to power. I'm afraid of the judgment you'll have on me. It's not just politicians who do that. We do that too. 
When Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from seeing him. Okay, let's get a little background on Felix here. Who was this guy? Felix was born a slave. He was one of the very rare men in the Roman Empire who was born a slave, freed along with his brother by Herod's wife, and then ended up finding himself in significant positions of authority in the Roman government. This was a cruel man. He was a cruel man. He was born into slavery and never really left that, uh, those wounds that he got as a young kid being born and living in Roman slavery. Those never left him. The historian Tacitus wrote of him, he was a master of cruelty and lust and he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was highly anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. He killed the high priest Ananias and would, would kill hundreds of them at a time. He was a terrible, terrible man. And we, we learn in verse 24 that he married this woman, Drusilla. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Who was Drusilla? Well, she was Jewish. He married her when she was 18 years old, and he convinced her to leave her husband at the time. That, that, that's what this man was. He, was. he was drunk on power. He went to a man who was married to a woman, saw a beautiful woman. It was the historian Josephus who wrote that Drusilla was an incredibly beautiful woman. He saw this woman, took her from that man, married her. It was his third wife. And he, he then continued to live a terrible, uh, tyrannical life with Drusilla as a power couple together. Who was Drusilla? Her great uncle, or no, her, her grandfather was Herod Agrippa I, which means that it was, or no, it was her grandfather that had killed the babies in the beginning stories of the gospel of Jesus when Herod went and killed all the babies in Bethlehem in order to, because he was jealous of Jesus being born. That was her grandfather. And it was her great uncle who had had John the Baptist beheaded. So this is a young woman who is well acquainted with family persecuting Christians and wanting to expunge Christianity. And it's interesting, she was Jewish. This is how convoluted this man was, Felix. He was an anti-Semite who hated Jews who married a Jewish woman because she was that beautiful. <laughs> he was a very confused man. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't get his life in order at all. There were all sorts of wounds going through this guy's heart. Listen to how Paul goes to him. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. He sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned, keep in mind all the background I just told you about Felix. As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given by Paul. He was looking for a bribe, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, I love Paul in this moment. He's got nothing to lose He's before Felix, who's a tyrant. And what's he preaching on? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What's righteousness? Righteousness is living in accordance with God's law, doing what God says is right. What's self-control? It's not being led by your impulses. Guy who tore a beautiful woman away from her happily marriage in order to marry her because he was just attracted to her. It's not going and killing the high priest just because you're jealous of the power he has in Jerusalem and thinking you can just live a life and get away from it. 
He's preaching on righteousness. He's preaching on self-control. And he's preaching on the coming judgment. And I love the language it says. It says he began to reason. That word is very interesting. It's to make a logical case for these issues. He's not just preaching emotionalism to him. He's actually making a legal case for righteousness, for self-control, and for the coming judgment. He's looking Felix in the eye, and he's saying, your worldview is about to collapse on you, and you will face a judgment one day. And if you face that judgment, and you have not believed in Jesus Christ, it will not go well for you, because there's an eternity in hell for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins, and you, my friend, have stored up a whole lot of sin in your life. He's looking at Felix, who's the most powerful man, at least that, he's, that Paul's faced so far, who can throw in prison or behead him in that moment. He's got nothing to lose. And you know what it says about Felix? Our translation says he was alarmed. Every other time, almost every time that's used in the New Testament, that word is terrified. He's absolutely terrified by this man who has absolutely nothing to lose. There's conviction going on in his heart, isn't there? The, the gospel's being preached. He's realizing that this man, Jesus Christ, is the only option. Either I continue living my life I've been living of clinging to power, of having authority, domineering over people, or I actually get my wounds from being born into slavery healed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I begin to reign righteously. I begin to actually rule as one who understands there's a king over me that I'm going to give an account of my life to one day, and I can't just do anything I want whenever I want. There's a judgment coming. Whether either I choose to believe in Jesus or I choose not to believe in Jesus, and there's no middle way. And this is what's amazing. Paul's looking at the man who may behead him, who doesn't, but may behead him, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. And he's preaching grace for sinners like me. Why would that man, why would Paul preach that message to Felix? Because that's who Paul was. <laughs> Paul's looking at Felix as a Christian and rather than seeing a wicked man who's not worthy of the gospel, he's seeing himself. And he's saying, if grace could save a wicked man like me, grace could save a wicked man like you. You know, the greatest mistake we make as Christians is we look down our nose at other people. And we see all the mistakes they're making and all the wicked things they're doing. And, and we as Christians in our high holy hill look down at them and say, what fools? What are you doing? Get your life together. Pay your taxes. Be a good neighbor. Bring your garbage out, right? Be a good citizen. Be nice. Why are you making those foolish decisions? And we look down at them and we think, I wouldn't do those things. No, you didn't read the gospel. You don't know what Jesus said about you. Because if we read the gospel, you're no better than that man. You're no better than that woman. How dare we as Christians look down our nose outside and think that we have anything better to offer the only reason we have anything is because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. Sinners like us saved by grace from Jesus Christ. See, the gospel flips it. And, and, and it flips our entire dynamic of power and our, our entire dynamic of seeing other people. It flips it and it makes us the most humble people on the planet. How can a Christian not be unbelievably humble? How can Paul look at Felix and say anything other than here's what grace looks like because this is what grace looked like for me. I'm offering you the very thing that was offered to me after I killed some people because they were following Jesus. That's what every Christian's got to do. And we get this wrong every day. And the church has faced a lot of scrutiny because we continue to make the same mistake. We like to call persecution 
when really it's just the rest of the world laying the facts bare that we look down our noses at others way too often. And there's a reckoning for that, church. But I also think there's an opportunity because the secular world around us is a lot like Felix. The, the worldview is going to crumble. Felix cannot keep this up. You know what happened shortly after this? L- listen to this. Felix thought he was in control and he left. He didn't make a decision. He was looking for a bribe. He heard the gospel. He said, you know what? No, I make my choice. I'm going to cling to power. You know what happened a couple years after this? Mount Vesuvius exploded. You know who was there? Drusilla and Felix's son. And they died in Mount Vesuvius a couple years after that. They had no power. They were not holding on to it. It was all a veneer. It was all a lie. They were clinging to something they didn't have in the first place. Felix lost his job a handful of years later, removed from the annals of history. He never had any power to begin with. He was just looking for a bribe, trying to cling to a little more power. The gospel frees us from the tyranny of thinking we're in control. You might not have the type of control and the type of power that Felix had. Most of us, almost everybody, no one's going to have that type of power. But it comes out in little ways in each of our life. Every one of us has some level of power. You might be a parent exerting power over your children. I see this in myself all the time. It's, it's late in the day. I come home. I'm exhausted from a long day. I give them a bath. I'm tucking them in. I'm so short-tempered sometimes with them. And I've shared that with you before. Why is that? It's because the little power I can cling to when I'm tired and exhausted at the end of the day is over my little children. I have total authority over them. I can choose to use it wisely and steward that, or I can choose to be tyrannical. Sometimes I choose the other one, the one I shouldn't. Why? Because I cling to power. I'm tired, or I've had a hard day, and there's something I can cling to. You might be a boss at work. You might have authority over other people. You might have relationships, friendships, where people look up to you, and you know they look up to you. See, this gets played out in a hundred ways in each one of our lives in varying degrees. But if you, if you don't know the gospel or don't know how to practice the gospel, what you end up doing is smothering and micromanaging people and using people. But if you know the gospel, it flips the script and you become very humble. You see others as better than yourself. You offer them grace where you might have a first move to be a tyrant. The gospel changes the way you live. I started by reading this prayer from Henry Nowen. Let me, let me recite it to you again. He said, Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Let me answer it for us. Here's the rest of that prayer. Not from him, from me. Well, our identity before God will not have changed from what our identity was the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That's who we'll be. We'll be your sons and daughters, God both fully known and fully loved, adopted into your family. Jesus's blood will be the basis of our righteousness. His wounds will be the basis of our healing. We'll be chosen, secured, preserved, and content for all eternity. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we love you. We love the gospel. God, sinners like us, sometimes we have moments where we realize we might know the gospel, we have not been living the gospel. And I confess right now, Lord, I cling to power. I hate it, and I hate it when I see it in me. This sermon has been convicting to prepare. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would not only heal me, but your Holy Spirit would do a work right now in this room that would reveal areas in our life where we just have not practiced the gospel, where we're more like Felix, more like those Pharisees than we are like Paul, who was content in Christ. 
not trying to prove anything, not trying to defend himself, filled by the Spirit, excited to see the gospel go forward no matter what happened to him. Lord, make us a bold church, bold in the gospel, bold in our faith. Make us the kind of church that the outside world looks in on and they might disagree with us, but they cannot argue with the courage and the compassion and the charity and the love and the servant-heartedness coming out of this place. And that we would be like Paul proclaiming, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's not ourselves, it's Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you have your way with this church? We don't want to be stuck in the same places forever, Lord. We want to grow. We want to mature. And God, I pray for those in this room who are hearing a message about power and they're hearing a message about the ways we do this and they're asking questions, what is this even about? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring clarity that this is about Jesus and how he transforms a life. And he changes us from who we were in all of our brokenness and he makes us new, born again. God, I pray for those in this room right now that need to truly believe in Jesus, even in this space, that you'd give them the courage to do so, to not be like Felix, who heard the gospel, who heard the message, who tasted of how good it could be, and then walked away. They were more interested in a little bit of money. God, I pray that they would receive the gospel right now, and you do an amazing, remarkable work. In Jesus' holy name.